just feel the joy in the hearts of the people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's so good to be gathered together again this evening. Lord, to see the house full once again and our hearts full and under expectation to hear from you. And Lord, I pray that as the people have made a sacrifice in obedience to your word to be here, some with demands upon their time, maybe even some demands upon their minds, but yet they've set aside anything else and they've come here. Uh, already the week to come is pressing in on us, but we want to just pause again for a little bit of time to look to you and, uh, and desire that you speak to us and take the bread of life and open it up to us. And Lord, we love you. We're so grateful to be gathered together tonight as family. And may that, that bond that we share in the word become that, that thing that binds us closer together. And may you have preeminence in our midst. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 5. And verses uh, 22 to 33, and I want to just pick up where we stopped this morning on family life, and we laid a, quite a broad foundation of how that we are as the bride facing the completion of that threefold purpose that was manifested in Adam and the woman, the mystery that was hidden that. And so there was a, a broad foundation about where the prophet placed us in the end time and, and even how those things are connected with the open of the word, the things that we love and enjoy so much. And towards the end, we just made it more practical in terms of how our family is to portray that revelation and that expression of Christ. I just want to continue uh, on that in, in more of a general sense, maybe not very specific, but a general sense of that family life and God's purpose for it. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that I should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Amen. You may be seated. Brother Hildebrand, it's a great privilege to see you tonight. Glad that you made it back from vacation and then came to church. 
And I think that's a, that's a great example. A lot of times we come back from vacation. Ah, well, I'll just take a few more hours off. But it's wonderful just to see Brother Harold here tonight. And greetings to you from the believers there in Hickory, North Carolina, especially from Brother Barry. It's good to see him here and shake his hand and hug his neck again. I want to read this statement. We were reading it from the masterpiece today earlier. He says, notice the great masterpiece of the family. So God's first masterpiece was not a church. It was not the garden. It was not uh, the man, but it was the man and the woman and the expression of the woman together with the man. And Brother Branham called that the great masterpiece of the family. And then he begins to speak to that relationship between the husband and wife. And he says, the husband and wife cannot be truly a family unless they are one. They have to be. If they're not, they're not a good family. Wife pulling one way and the husband another, that would make an awful family. But in agreement with love one to the other, that's a family. And many times Brother Branham expresses uh, Christ and the bride being one, he is the word, so she is the word. They have, to be, they have to be one together in that. And he's lifting that up as the principle or the true principle that the bride is the word and is one with Christ. But he's now, he's in, not just referring to that relationship, but he's now speaking to our own marriages and our own lives uh, in our own family life that a husband and wife cannot really be a family unless they are one. So they have to be in agreement. They have to be in love one to another. He said, that's a family. If you have a wife who has her own agenda, a husband who has his own agenda, he does his thing, she does hers. He said, that's an awful family. So he's talking about being in accord and having the same vision and going the same direction and moving at the same pace together. He said, and now that was God's masterpiece. And now all the true family here portrays that. So when you find a family that's in love, in agreement, and in harmony, uh, they are expressing or portraying God's original masterpiece. So that's what Adam and the woman were reflecting. That's the potential that they had. And now our role today is to complete that original expression. We are today to be a, a true family, and not just the church family, but on the family level, husband to wife with their children, all the different families that make up this beautiful church. It's in that family unit within the home that we portray and reflect Christ. And so we begin to speak to it uh, this afternoon how it isn't just a family that portrays God, but it's the true family that is arranged in a particular way. They have to be arranged under the word. Uh, many times we could see that in our, our family and maybe even men of God pastors can see that there's a need within families uh, and there's a need for uh, maybe fathers to pay more attention to their children, uh, uh, husband and fathers to be uh, uh, with the one with their wives and the mothers and everyone to have more unity and continuity. And you see families can be a little bit out of order and disheveled and, and not harmonized and working well. And we can say, well, we need to focus on the family. We need to get the families right. We need to spend more time with the family. I need to draw my family closer to me and those are very good sentiments but we can never place the family above the word and so as much as the word would lift up the importance of the family it never is elevated above the word the family is arranged under the word and many times we can in our sincerity try to put family first but in putting family first we put the word second and if you do that you cannot help your family I've heard people testify before that they didn't come to church because their family was in town and they wanted to stay home and witness to them. And I thought, you've started off on the wrong foot. 
I, one of the greatest witnesses you could have to unbelieving family is that on a Sunday night while the Super Bowl is on, you're willing to still go to church. I'm sorry, I forgot for a moment I'm north of the border. The Super Bowl is football, American football. It's the biggest championship. Kind of, well, I won't even talk about the Stanley Cup. Never mind. We've had that for a while too, I think. But it, to come to service when the world is thinking, hey, you know, why don't you stay home, spend some time with your aunt and uncle you've never seen before? And why don't you do this? And why don't you do that? And really just reach out to them and show them love. One of the greatest witnesses is when you put the word first. Because then they realize, well, this is different than the way we go to church. This is different than how, what we value. And many times it's when we put the word second that we undermine our ability to have an impact in our families. There's been many who have been blessed with, with clothing and homes and goods and all sorts of things for their families. And they've provided a lot of material things to their families. But their family isn't blessed because they didn't seek first the kingdom of God and then allow that to add all things to their families. So Jesus makes a remarkable uh, statement and principle here in Matthew chapter 10 verses uh, 34 through 30, I believe 37. He makes this statement. He says, think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I am come not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance. This is very staggering to say this. I'm come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. So he's actually saying that I'm not, I, I don't want families to stay together for family's sake. Because I'm actually come to divide a man from his family for my sake. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So the family itself is not greater than the word. And there's nothing, uh, there's nothing greater than the Word of God. And so as he's, as he's bringing this to us, we cannot deny the Word of God for the sake of keeping our family together. We cannot compromise on the Word of God or forsake the Word of God and think that that's going to be a strength to our family. The Word is actually saying in order to, uh, that a man must be willing to forsake his family for the Word's sake. And not forsake the Word for his family's sake. So it puts in perspective that our focus is not on the family. We want to be a family focused on the word. We want to put the word first as a man. We want to put the word first as a woman. Knowing that if we put the word first, then we will not devalue family. We will not diminish the importance of our marriages. That if we truly have put God first, then that's the best thing we can do for our families. Don't ever fret, parents, if you see uh, something taking place within your children and feel that you've got to compromise to keep them close. There's a point at which you have to become a friend and a buddy to your teenager and, and love them and be patient with them. But you cannot compromise the Word of God and expect for them to hold the respect for you. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, it says, Everyone that hath forsaken houses, and that word houses means family. Or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. And so the principle remains that you have to keep the word first. So when I, even tonight, is, I feel impressed maybe to make these statements. Because when someone is ministering on the family, people can be critical about that. But it's not to, for, at the sake of the word that we put the family into focus. It's using the word to put the family in its place. 
When the family then is reflecting the word, then there's nothing greater. If the family itself is not greater than the word, but when the family is expressing the word, then it's expressing God. Brother Bram says, now we see them as a masterpiece family in the Garden of Eden. He says, how beautiful it was. And so the family represents God's great desire, God's masterpiece. And he says, this masterpiece was walled by the word, God's word. And the masterpiece itself of the family was fortified by this word. But the broken part that was broke off of the original went beyond the wall. It gives Satan a chance to mar it. So when God created this first masterpiece, he framed it a particular way. This great family portrait had a frame and a matting that gave it boundaries. As he says, he was walled by the word and it was walled by God's, uh, by God's word. And if she went beyond the wall, it gave Satan a chance to mar it. There were parameters that they had to stay within. There was boundaries that were set and that was for the protection of the family. That was for the pleasure of the family. That was for the provision of the family. That was to sustain the family and all the individual members of the family. Bill Brown says when he made this first masterpiece, he put them behind the word. So it was a family arranged a particular way. It was a family under the headship of God's commandment. The first family had a specific order. It was arranged in a very specific way, and it was the arrangement that made it God's masterpiece. He didn't create the the man and then create the woman, and she was in one part of Eden, and he was in the other part of Eden. And he's like, wow, we've got a masterpiece. No, it was the way that God brought them forward. It was the way that he brought the woman to the man. It was the way that they set them forth. That is what made it a masterpiece. And we mentioned this earlier. This is what Satan hates. Satan hates this, uh, the arrangement of a family. Satan hates uh, uh, the image of a true family. Because it's something that he cannot have. It's something that he cannot become. Satan cannot have a family. He can only pervert what God has already created. Satan cannot become a family. He can only pervert what God has created. And so Satan hates the image of a true family. And today he hates that image because the image of a true family is portraying God. A true family in arrangement and in harmony is a reflection of God. And so Satan hates anything that reflects God. He hates the roles and responsibilities of the individual members of a family. Because a family is an expression of God. It expresses divine attributes. It's an expression of his character. It's an expression of God's thoughts. Brother Bram says, parenthood originated in God because he was the first parent. He says he's the source of parenthood. He says in another place that fatherhood is an attribute of God. Then it gives us confidence to believe that if I step into the role of a father, then I am in an office of God. If I step into the role of a mother, then God being the first parent, this is an office that can reflect and portray God. Therefore, there's a power that God wants to give you when you step into those offices. I realize that it can be a very fearful thing to, uh, to bring forth children in this age that we're living in with all the, whether it be laws that are being passed or the way the society thinks and the way things are, it's a very difficult climate to bring forth children into. But there's a power that comes with that office that if you will place yourself under the word of God, you can actually be a channel for God's wisdom and God's attributes of a divine parent. So he wants to empower you in those roles. And we don't need to worry about what man can do to us. We don't have to worry about what's out there. But believe that God has equipped us to raise sons and daughters of God in this age. 
We're not just merely having children. We're bringing forth sons and daughters of God. And Brother Branham said that marriage was first performed in the Garden of Eden. It was first instituted then. So the, fam- the marriage is something that reflects and portrays God. God wanted to have a wife, so he had to become a man. He had to become a husband. And so in, this, in the institution of marriage, it's something that God blesses. And it reflected his first masterpiece. Man, the man, and the woman. So as we read in Ephesians chapter 5, and I like to begin to read again the text that we took in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. I like just to begin to read through it once again. He says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He could have asked us to love our wives to any degree, but he asked us to love them to the highest degree. He could have said, try your best. Uh, But he tells us, he's he's teaching husbands, he's instructing husbands. And he's telling them how that they ought to love their wives. And he's telling them to love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So you can actually draw from two sides. You, can, you begin to see the picture of Christ to the bride. But he's using this picture of Christ to the bride to instruct us as men how that we ought to treat our wives. And so he's eliciting the highest standard that he could call for. He's asking men to step up and to live by the actual highest code of conduct that a man could be demanded to attain to. He says that it's Christ, as he loved the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, he's really, he's really getting into some deep things when he's talking about this. And as Christ would love the church unselfishly, and that he, he ministered to the church, and he sanctifies it, and he cleanses it, and he's a servant to it. He's saying that's how a man ought to love his wife. The wife isn't there for her to serve him, but he as the head is there to also serve her and minister to her needs. A man's not just given a woman so that she could clean up after him and look out after him and serve him and serve him. But, but the scripture here, Paul is telling us that Christ served his wife. Sanctifies, cleanses, it's unselfish, it's sanctified, it's sacrificial. So he says, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. And hold that thought there. He's telling you to love your wife as if it was your own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Now, ponder this for a moment. As he says that you ought to love your wives as your own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man has ever hated his own flesh. Now, perfectly, he's speaking about Adam and Christ. Because when it comes to the wife, the wife of Adam was his own flesh. So when he loved his wife, he loved his own flesh. And so when it comes to Christ, the the bride is and the church is his own flesh, as Paul said, which is his body. And so the body of Christ is his wife. So it perfectly, Adam loved his wife. And she was his own flesh. Perfectly, Christ loves his wife and she is his own flesh. And he says, and neither one has ever yet hated his own flesh. 
but he nourishes and cherisheth it. Now you have to realize Paul is speaking now, and I may be getting a little bit ahead of myself, but Paul, as he continues to write, he's looking back at Adam and the woman to draw his inspiration. Because when the woman fell in sin, and she went beyond the boundaries of God's word, and Satan marred that masterpiece, Adam could have hated his own flesh. Adam could have said, woman, you have done the worst thing you could possibly do. You've defiled the marriage covenant. You've defiled the purpose of God. You've broke our covenant. You've done something that you should have never done. And so he could have felt his ribs and said, God, there's a few more of these. We could start all over again. But Adam did not hate his own flesh. But what did he do? Under a marriage covenant, he redeemed her, brought her to himself. In an act of love, an instinctive act of love, made sure that she wasn't condemned and destroyed. What? This was a man not hating his own flesh. This was a man loving his wife and therefore loving his own flesh. And that's exactly what Christ did even when this church was fallen. He didn't leave her lay there, but began through the restoration and the reformation to bring this body back. It's a beautiful revelation. So he says that. We should love that man ought to, says, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Brother Ben said, she is him. And then he says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. What Paul is doing now is he's actually drawing, this is Paul's revelation is drawn from Genesis chapter 2. Because when he quotes this, he's quoting from Adam when he begins to speak after the woman is brought to him. So when he's, when he's challenging husbands and wives, or challenging husbands to love their wives, he's not bringing up anything that was given after the fall. But he's bringing us as men back to the original commandment that God gave Adam and the woman. Back to the very words of Adam when they still existed under a single marriage covenant. After the fall in Genesis 3.15, that's when Brother Bram says, now there's two. So in Genesis 3.15, now there's a double marriage covenant or two marriage covenants that would govern the, uh, the fall of mankind and govern the man and the woman from that point on. And that's a lot of times the only thing we get out of marriage and divorce. But the real revelation we need to get out of marriage and divorce was that before the fall, there was one. And what this message brings us back to is it brings us back to before the fall. And so when Paul begins to teach husbands, he doesn't teach them under double covenant. He teaches them under the single covenant. He says, love your wife as if it was your own flesh. And he's instructing the men to realize that this woman that's been given to you, as the scripture says, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. He's actually quoting from the original single marriage covenant. Let me say this. This is a mouthful just to get you chewing on it. Under the original marriage covenant, there was no divorce. There was only redemption. That's why when Adam, that's all he could do to his wife is redeem her. That's all he could do is just redeem her. He couldn't put her away. He was under a single marriage covenant. And so under that covenant, he redeems her. And we are brought back as the bride under that original marriage covenant. There is no fear of divorce for the bride. There is no fear that he'll put you away. He'll be with you even in you, never leave you, and appear to you time and time and time again, washing you, building you up until you meet that mark. 
And he says, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so the, the perfect fulfillment is found in Christ and the church. And he acknowledges it. This is a great mystery. But because here we could have in the, in the flesh, you have a man who marries a woman. And we say, now the two are one. And we're still looking at two. But the real mystery, he's saying, is Christ and the church. Because those two become one. He says, nevertheless, even though the, the mystery I'm speaking about is Christ and the church, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his, love his wife even as himself. Even if the great mystery, even if the perfect fulfillment is in Christ and his bride, I'm still telling you to love your wife as Christ loves the church. And the wives see that she reverence her husband as the church does Christ. As the wife is submitted to the husband, just as the church is submitted to Christ in all things. So Paul is actually elevating the importance of marriage when he begins to speak in this way. He's taking marriage and the relationship between the man and the woman, and he's raising it up to the highest place he could actually raise it. He's not devaluing it. He's not diminishing it. He's not qualifying. He's actually saying that the role of a man to a woman and a woman to a man under the marriage covenant is the highest office that they can occupy because it's actually the reflection of Christ and his bride. And he begins to challenge men and women to express divine attributes. And he's saying, men, you love your wife as Christ loves the church. Women, you submit yourself to your husbands as the church is submitted to Christ. And he's actually instructing the man to express the divine attributes, to challenge the woman to express divine attributes. And he continues and he actually challenges children to express divine attributes. Because he begins to speak and continues writing. And in our Bibles, it begins another chapter. But Ephesians 6 verse 1 says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And you realize that when Paul speaks to children, he does so in Colossians 3.20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Paul does not qualify it when you get the Holy Ghost obeying. He's actually telling you, all you children here, those of you uh, young people here don't have the Holy Ghost, you are required, according to the Word of God, to obey your parents. Regardless of your experience with with the Word. And so the word tells you what you can do to be pleasing to the Lord. Obey your parents because this is right. Obey your parents for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. So even a child has the opportunity to fulfill the word of God and in doing so please the Lord. And so the word is even speaking to children who will not even yet be born again, may not even have that come to that place of accountability where they can make a decision to fully surrender to God. They can hear the word of God and obey the word of God and be pleasing to the Lord and in doing so express divine attributes. And so these instructions to parents, these admonishments to children, it reflects God's character. It's reflecting God's desire. And Brother Branham makes this statement. And, and, and I would say in that, what, what I'm wanting just to point out in that, is God, the word is arranging the, the husband and the wife and the children. He's put, putting them in their places. And Brother Branham in the message, Thirsting for Life, he's talking about, uh, he, he makes statements in different places. Home isn't uh, the house itself. It's not the structure. It's not the building. And you say something, he says in one place, oh, someone says it's a beautiful home. And he says, well, I don't know. The house may be beautiful. But it's not the structure that makes the house a a, a home. It's something, it's a character on the inside. And I'll read these statements to you. He says, a home is is the order of the house. You see the order that's in it, order of the family. 
And so what makes a house a home isn't the fact that you have four walls, isn't the fact that you have a place to sleep and a place to put all your possessions. It's the order that makes a house a home. He says the order of the family. When a family's in order, that transforms a dwelling place into a home. Transforms an apartment, a basement suite, a condo, a house, whatever it might be. It'll change the actual structure from a place where you keep your possessions and return to at night to go to bed and transform it into something that's warm, that's inviting, that's a safe haven, a place of instruction and protection and provision. It's the order of the family that's going to make a house a home. He says, I look around, I hear somebody say, isn't that a beautiful home? I said, I don't know. Home is not the house. It's the order of the house that makes the home. That's what makes homes. No matter if it's a shanty, whatever it is, if the order is right on the inside and godly, it's more of a home than if you had a palace somewhere. I'd rather live in a shanty and be happy than to live in a palace and be unhappy. That's the most important thing we could do as parents is create an atmosphere in our homes that our children are welcome in. A place that they're happy to return back to. And we do that by expressing divine attributes, showing love and patience and grace and keeping Christ welcome in our home. It's the order of the house, he says. And the message faith is the substance. It's one of those very first sermons, he says, it's the character on the inside that makes a home. So it's the order. It's the character. In another place, he says, you pastor... He says, your pastor here had me out to his home. Such a lovely place. I said, what I mean by that is the characteristic of it. A home isn't the house you live in. It's the order of the house then. That's what makes a home. So it's the, that's what makes a family is when they're in order. Brother Bram says, I think that's where the house of God is. It isn't so much the beautiful temple, which we do appreciate, but it's the order that's on the inside of it. There's a lot of churches that might have uh, uh, more prettier sanctuaries and more amenities and a better display, a a light show and and all sorts of pyrotechnics and everything to make the church, the service seem really, really engaging and really, really nice. But that's not what makes it a sanctuary. A lot of churches that might be able to enthuse people through music and through a lot of different uh, uh, tricks and gimmicks. But what makes it a beautiful sanctuary, what makes it a beautiful place is the order of the people when they come into this, this room. And they're quiet and they're praying and they're decent and they're in order and they're waiting for the word of God to come forth. That's what makes a church something beautiful. So Brother Brown said the beauty of the church is the character of the people. And he makes this statement in the message, influence of another. He says, your family is what you are. Think about that. Your family is what you are. And he says, you raise your child in a certain environment, it's got a 98% better chance to go right than if if you bring it up in the wrong way. I I don't know where he got his, his statistics, but that gets my attention. Your family is what you are. If you raise your child in a certain environment, and you say it's a, if it's raised in the right environment, he's got a 98% better chance to come out right than if he's raised in the wrong environment. Now, in an age that's just enamored with data and metrics 
and all sorts of things were, were, were informed by data. And it says, well, when this happens and you have these percentages and you have this much and, and every, they're able to make all these analytics and come to these decisions and decide things based upon the data and the information. It says, look, 98% of the time this is what happens when you do this. Then you've already pretty much the outcomes determined. Then we ought to take the metrics of this message and say, hey, I want to raise my children in the right kind of environment because I'm going to give them a 98% better chance to turn out right. And this, is, this reflects God's desire. He says, your family is what you are. So God is wanting to build up the family. Build you up as a son of God. Build you up as a daughter of God. But not only that, build you up as a son. Build you up as a daughter. Build you up as a brother. Build you up as a sister. Build you up as a husband and as a wife so that the family can express his divine attributes. Yeah, he wants to build you up in these different relationships so that we can become him expressed through family. In my office as a husband, I have an opportunity through that relationship to express Christ. Through your office as a wife, you have an opportunity to express Christ. As children, we have an opportunity to express Christ. These different family dynamics and family relationships are all opportunities for Christ to be made manifest. We, we ought to value much more the relationships we have. None of the relationships we have to each other are trivial. Even within the family of God in this church here, we should look at to one another as family. We should treat one another as family. Uh, we, should, we should build strong families so that our families can be uh, a family to other families in the church. Families to people who don't have families. There are people who've left father and mother to come to this message. There are people who've for, been forsaken by their husbands because of their stand for this message. There's people that have lost everything uh, to come and sit here and feed on this word of God. So we should value the opportunity we have here. And we should value relationships as we still have them. Because we're not just men and women in relationships of, uh, uh, of coincidence. These things aren't trivial. But our families become a portrait of God. You're not just in a relationship to meet a particular means or to have a tax write-off or to be able to do this or be able to do that. But we're in a family arranged by God, harmonized by the word of God to fulfill God's purpose. So we read already in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 to 24. And I'm just reading these to show how the word begins to arrange us. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Abraham says, a man is the head of the family, he's the head of the house. And this is what the scripture is saying. Wives are to submit themselves unto their husbands. He says, your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. You say, well, how? Well, just as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. So when he's made the head, he's the life giver. He's not made the head so that the body serves the head, but so that the, the head can give life to the body. He says he's the savior of the body. He's the one that's governing, administering, and making sure the nutrients and the, and the things that are required for a vital life are, are taking place and everything's functioning properly. So the head's just not there as the head to be served, but the head is there to be sure for the, the full functioning of the body. Because God hasn't arranged it so that the man could be a dictator, the man could be a brute, the man could look down upon the body. It's his own body. Right. But yet the body must be subject unto the head. 
He writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. This is God's arrangement. The head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Now, can we not conclude based upon this that God is a God of headship? That God is a God of order? That God is a God of arrangement? The head of Christ is God. So God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. He's actually given us an arrangement of things. He's shown us the order of things. Showing how things are put together. This is the proper order. This is God's word arranging his entire family. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. This is God's arrangement for not only for his family, but for all families. And if we, the men, are to be the head of the woman, Christ must be the head of us. He says, Christ is the head of every man. That's the, he's the head of the male. It's translated also to husband. So the, the man's head must be Christ. In order for us to be a proper head to the woman, our head must be Christ. Because the man is the woman's head. We want Christ to be our head. Otherwise, we're a headless head. Right? I'm your head, woman, you listen to me. And you've got no head because Christ isn't your head. But if the man is in his place, if he's arranged under Christ the word, he has the head, he allows the rest of the family to come into alignment. There's actually certain branches of uh, uh, medical practice that are solely focused on making sure the head is properly aligned to, to address all sorts of ailments in the body. And that particular discipline believes that if you could get the head aligned right, whether it be cancer, some problem with your ankle, all sorts of maladies in the bloodstream, the nervous system, can all be remedied by beginning with getting the head in the right position. And it does reflect something, that if there is something wrong in the family, if the husband can get himself right, if he can get himself under the word of God, and by faith believe that God, you've made me the man of this house. You've made me the head. And if I as the head can get right under you, then the rest of the body will come in line. And the body will obey my confession. And the body will come under my direction. That's exactly what Brother Branham begins to express in the one message where he says he came home and he has so much pressure all around him. Things are chaotic in the, in the spiritual realm around him. And he comes home and Brother Joseph is just banging something and the other kids are just fighting and everything's chaotic. And, and his wife is at the, uh, headed to a nervous breakdown and he comes in there and he doesn't say, come on, listen to you. I've been out there praying for the people. I've been preaching the word of God. And when I come home, I want to quiet. And I knocked you up against the wall, buddy. Give you a knuckle sandwich. He didn't do that. This is my, this is my castle. You better shape up. I'm out there praying for the sick all day. Now come home. I'm sick and tired of the loud craziness that's going around here. Brother Brown didn't do any of that. He did the quite, quite the opposite of what we think a man would do. He went and put on a dishwashing apron. And what did he say happened as he began to wash the dishes and just touch his wife? He changed the atmosphere. And he makes this statement. He says, why? Because those are my children. And he says, I was God. Now, if you go look it up on the the table app now, they've changed it. He says, I was God's. But if you look at the truth that's being reflected in it, he was in his domain. 
Those were my children. I was, the, I was the God of this atmosphere. I'm a God to my family. Why? Because my head is Christ and the head of Christ is God. I'm his representative on earth. And even if you want to look at I was God's and those are my children. I stand here with the power to create an atmosphere, to change the direction. That's the role that the man could take. That's the position that the word is giving the man. The man could be in his place and the family can function and be in alignment. It says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Amen. Why? Because that's your, that's your weakness. To be harsh in leadership. To be harsh in love. To be harsh in headship. So he says, love them but, and be not bitter against them. He's cautioning against this tendency to try to be more, uh, to be embittered, to be strong, to be powerful in a worldly sense. Instead of being sacrificial and loving. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Why? Because that's a weakness of man. In discipline and instruction, to do so in a way that frustrates the child and provokes them to anger. And in doing so, discourages them. It says Ephesians 6, 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. This is, this is the word arranging the family. This is the word arranging it. And, I, and maybe what I'm doing tonight, just with the little bit of time that we have now, is just to pay attention to the role that the God placed the man in. I preached just a few sermons one time in my title, and I had to say at the very beginning, my title was Putting the Woman in Her Place. And I had to say, just stick with me, because you may want to leave. You know, all the sisters are getting up, grabbing their kids, grabbing someone's else's kids so they have an excuse to leave. You know, just, we're, we're out of here. But the, but the whole point... Behind my inspiration of putting the woman in her place is that a woman has no place except by the man. And so you don't put a woman in her place as uh, like under your thumb, but you lift her up. And you provide a place by you for her to stand. So she can't be in her place unless you've provided that place, unless that place is sanctified, unless that opportunity's opened up. And if we're bitter against them and we're harsh and, and, and we treat them the wrong way, then we actually make it harder for them to do their job, which is submit. Harsh headship makes it harder on a woman to submit. And so, because harsh leadership actually plays against their weakness, which is not to submit. So if you're harsh, you make it worse. And what happens? It's just beating them apart, further apart, and further apart. So if we can do our part first, it makes it easier for everyone else to do their part. Amen. Brother Brown says this in Thinking Man's Filter. He said, the woman, seeing she reverence her husband, reverence her husband. And we could. We could take a lot of time just showing how the man is the head of the woman. Certainly take the word of the hour and just place it time and time again that puts the woman in this role to the husband. But he says, then a husband ought to live such a life before his wife that his wife could reverence him as a son of God. So where's the responsibility? It's not our responsibility to quote the scripture to our wife to put in her place. But it's our responsibility to live the kind of life that draws her to her place. A husband ought to live the kind of life that would make his wife reverence him as a son of God and makes it easy for her to submit. Because I believe it is within the woman to want to submit to headship, to want to be led, to want to have a husband take his place. And when you take your place under Christ, it'll draw that ladylike character out of the wife. He says if he doesn't live that kind of life, well then of course she wouldn't reverence him because she knows what he's made of. 
But when it's a man that is a reverent man, reverent and clean with his wife and before his family, a real servant of God, then the children, women, he says women, children, and all should respect that servant of God with reverence. Amen. So it's a responsibility for us to live the right kind of life. He says in the message, thirsting for life, he's speaking of the woman. He says, her place is home. That's it. Here she's supposed to be at home. And then his tone changes very quick because we could all rah-rah around that maybe as men. But he says, and mister, you might call yourself ever so good. But if you've got lodges and other things that calls you away from her at night, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. God gave you a home to cherish and comfort and things like that. And it's a shame to see the way man does their wives and wives do men. The womanhood and fatherhood of the nation is torn to pieces. Divorce courts are piled full. Now, I'm sure that none of us would want to say, well, at least we're together. At least we're not divorced. And none of us should just be happy with getting by. We should desire to have marriages that are full. Full of joy. Full of the joy of the Lord. Meeting the full potential that they can fulfill. And Brother Branham is touching on a weakness and a characteristic where if you see a man, he's always away from his wife. Always find an excuse to be gone. Always hanging out with his buddies. Always gone doing this. It's always the wife goes home with the kids after church and he goes out to eat. Then that, that, that's, that's not the right image. That's not the right expression. Brother Bram says God gave you a home to, for nourishment, for comfort, and to cherish. He says that's where the man belongs. We say that the woman belongs at home and her place is at home. We saying the man belongs there with the wife. It's not just a place for her to, to, to stay in and cook and clean and everything. But it's a place where the man and woman are able to reflect something to their children. You know, a lot of children have problems and emotional problems and mental battles. And a lot of they act, they act out and they, they can even rebel and cause a lot of problems because they're not secure in even their parents' marriage and relationship. And a lot of problems and emotional problems within our children can be solved many times just by showing them that the parents are in love. They do communicate. They are together. That they are happy to be together. That they are still in love. This is what Brother Branham, I believe, is lifting up. Not just that the woman belongs at home, but the man is the one that makes the home. Men are home builders. We are spiritual home builders. If you've never swung a hammer in your life, if you're a man and you're married, you're still a home builder. Because God has called us to build homes, to make houses homes. And then a woman's called to be a homemaker. But you've got to build the home first as a man. Her place is home, but mister, you've got a place to come home to. God gave you a home for cherishment and comfort and things like that. I'm going to uh, just take it a step further. I know this is really unique, but I guess you can only do that if you're comfortable. I could, I could say this. As a preacher, there are sermons that I want to preach every time I'm asked to preach. I'm like, yep, I want to preach. There's a sermon I was able to preach one time. It's called, And He Came. And I'm like, I want to preach that. Every time. It's the top one. Even if I preached it somewhere before. And I've only preached it a couple times. I'm like, can I preach this again? Because you love preaching it. But you've got to preach what God puts on your heart. And there's, a, and there's a lot of things that a minister thinks about when he's going. And he thinks about these things. But if you could just find what God wants to say, you just rest in that. No, it'll, it'll, it its purpose. The people might not all be shouting. You may not be carried on, the, on someone's shoulders. Nobody might shout kumadaba or three times seven. But you still know you're in the channel. You're preaching the things that God wants you to say. 
And there's a great truth here that's, that really helps us to express Christ in the third pull. And I want to read a statement to you. And it's to put things, it's to put things in perspective and context. Brother Branham, in How Can I Overcome? He says, your pastor is your husband, spiritually speaking. Now, there's a lot of confusion caused by this statement. Brother Branham, when he makes this statement, your pastor is your husband, spiritually speaking. He's referring to Lot's wife who refused the leadership of her husband. And so when Brother Branham says your pastor is your husband, spiritually speaking, he was not saying that the pastor of the church is your spiritual husband, but he was saying that your literal husband is your spiritual pastor. So to wives here tonight, he wasn't saying that Brother Harold is your spiritual husband. He was saying that your husband is your spiritual pastor. Now that changes things. Because there, there's perhaps been an understanding in the past that, oh, my, my pastor is a spiritual husband to me. And listen, that might not have been a problem if that man knew how to be the right kind of husband. But because many don't know how to be the right kind of husband, they use this spiritual husband as a way to manipulate, control, and abuse the church. I'm your spiritual husband. Could you, would you ever do that without letting your husband know? Would you ever make a decision like that without letting your husband know? Could you ever do this without letting your husband know? You have to talk to your husband first. And it causes a lot of confusion. Because you're thinking, well, I did talk to my husband. We did make a decision. This is what our family decided. But in some, some way, there's this idea created that you, the, the pastor's actually your husband. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the husband is the spiritual pastor. The husband then should be the right kind of spiritual pastor in the home. Be the right kind of spiritual pastor to the family. And I just want to stay in this train of thought here for a little bit just to substantiate it. Brother Branham and the word of God places the man as the spiritual leader within the home. And the role of a pastor does not usurp the authority of the man over his wife. And does not replace the leadership of the man over his own home. But rather the pastor serves an office within the church to feed the word of God that might instruct heads of the family and build up and encourage and strengthen and nurture the family so that they can be a strong unit and not replace it. Whenever it's been replaced, families break up. But if a man can be faithful to lift up the man in the home, then families stay together, churches grow and become stronger. You'll find that even within church order, there's no office within the church that fulfills all the roles that a husband fulfills within the family. And as a matter of fact, you would take the trustees, the deacons, and the pastor. Those three offices together fill the role that a father does within his own family. And so a man is tasked. He has the responsibility to physically feed and spiritually lead his family. He's the pastor. He's the pastor of his family. Brother Bram talks about the wife being a pastor. The mother, right? Says she's a pastor in the home because she's the assistant pastor. It's exactly what it is. It's the way it's been arranged. 
The husband is the pastor. She's the assistant pastor. And what does she have to do? She has to assist him in every role that he might, might have to do in his absence. They're working together. Not one going this way, one going that way. It's something that's very beautiful, something very harmonious. It's something that's placed in the Word of God. And something that we see reflected in church order. Church order is a type of family order. And now listen to how we've already read these scriptures, Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. And I'm just using this to show that the husband is a spiritual pastor. It says, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. So it is the role of the man to nourish and cherish his wife. He's the one that's to wash her, to sanctify her, to look after her, and to care for her. That's the role of the man within the family. But it's the role of Christ within the church to do that. And what does Christ do? He uses his dress wear, which is a five-fold ministry, to perform this service. But within the family, this is the role of the man. And listen, I'm in no way trying to tear down the role or uh, 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 the responsibility of a pastor. It's to bring it to greater light. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What, the man is a nourisher. He cherishes. He nurtures. He admonishes. That's the role of the man within the home. Brother Bram says this in God's provided way. He says, I want you to notice how beautiful that is. He's talking about in the time of the Exodus and how the, the, they had the responsibility of following those instructions of the prophet because there was death coming. And death would visit that family unless the man did exactly what that prophet said to do. And he says, how beautiful that is, the lintel, the top of the door and the doorpost, not on the bottom. The blood of Christ isn't to be looked down at, it's to be looked up to, perfectly in the door, the shape of the cross. Every father in that day was a priest of his own family, and it was up to each individual family to kill a lamb. Listen, church is no substitute. Just because we go to church doesn't mean we don't have time in prayer with families. We need to get the family Bible back out. Have a family altar. Do family devotions together. Why? Just going to church doesn't replace that. He says every father and dad, they was a priest of his own family. If that was so in that exodus, it's so in the third exodus. That every man is a priest to his own family. And it's our responsibility to be sure that that lamb is in the house. Why? Because the man is the physical and spiritual provider. He is the protector of his wife and his family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 35, because and I want to read these few scriptures here to emphasize this point. Brother Branham placed the husband as a spiritual pastor. So then he has a responsibility within the home to ensure that this, the spirit is right, that the word is being communicated, that there's a connection with the word of God, there's an understanding of what's being taught. He has that role. And the Bible says, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Now, what does the law say? She's to be in obedience to her husband. So Paul is actually, as he talks about conduct, order, and doctrine within the church and the way that things would operate within the church and church order, he actually is saying that the woman's to keep silent because she's commanded to be under obedience to her husband. Uh 
Because he says, and if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. So Paul actually anticipates the objection. Well, what if the woman doesn't understand? What if she she has a question? What if she needs to know more? What if she needs counsel? He's actually saying, well, then go to your husband. That's That's the perfect order. That would be the general order. He says, let her ask their husbands at home. That doesn't mean invite the pastor to your house because your pastor is not your husband, spiritually speaking. Your husband is your pastor, spiritually speaking. So he's saying you ask them at home. That's, where the, that's the perfect order where there would be such a relationship to where if the wife did not understand something, she could ask her husband at home and learn. So that's what he's instructed. If you want to learn, don't ask other men, but ask your own particular husband. Let them ask their husbands at home. In 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. It's Paul setting the church in order, arranging each relationship. And he does not place the church over the family. The role of the man of God to stand in the church, the pastor, the highest order within the church, the one who has the highest authority within the local body, even though this is an office that that, that makes the final decisions, that's the head of the church, it's the one that the body as a unit would look to to make certain decisions and to feed the church of God and lift it up. That authority does not pierce the veil of a man's authority over his family. And it's important, I believe, for, for those relationships to be nurtured such that you're encouraging men to make the right kind of decisions. And, and women are encouraged to have confidence in their husbands as they make them and not always having to, well, what would the pastor think? What would the pastor say? Are we making the right decision? Let's go ask the pastor. He said, I, I, say, I say, I'm building equity or I save it for when it counts. You pick your battles. Because there's going to be a time you need to go to the man of God and you need to hear from God. And you want to approach that gift the right way so that it can be a benefit to you and it can be a blessing to you. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, but if any provide not for his own house, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Himself. He must provide for himself and especially his own family. Why? Because that's the role of the man. He's tasked with this responsibility to be a spiritual pastor in his home. Hey, I mean, that's just the way it is, guys. Amen. It's just the way the Bible says it. We call ourselves Bible believers, right? We're message believers, right? This is what we believe. Well, all right, step up. This is what we believe. And, and, I, I, and I just preach it because it's there, not because I've got it. When I, I preached a sermon one time, it was called The Seven Bad Habits of a Highly Ineffective Father. <laughs> Because I can't preach the seven good habits of a highly effective father because I don't know them. I, I don't know that I am. But I know all my bad habits. And I know what hasn't worked. So I can preach from the perspective, hey, I've done this, it didn't work. Let me tell you not to try it. But I can look in the Word and see, this is just what the Bible says. Am I a perfect husband? Far from it. But my wife's perfect because she wouldn't tell you that. But I know I'm flawed. I know I have mistakes. I know I don't do the right things as a father. But yet I see an image in the word of God that I want to attain to. And I say, God, I want to be the right kind of man. I want to be the right.
right kind of spiritual pastor. I want to be the right kind of shepherd to my boys. I want to raise my daughter to be a lady. That's what I want. I don't say, well, I'm weak. I'm flawed. I had this. This runs in the family. It's this way. I was raised this way. I'll be that way. I say, no, God, you break cycles. Lord, let me improve upon this great blessing of being raised in a message home. If I'm a second generation message son, then I ought to be able to take it further. I want to build on this great legacy. What a privilege we have. Let me just say this as we close. As we read in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helpmeet for him. God has given the man a woman to assist him and to help him in his great work. We want to be unified in our vision. Maybe that would be the challenge. It's just so easy to get busy. Busy doing the things that you're supposed to do. Husband's busy providing to pay the bills. A wife's busy raising the children, doing domestic duties. But there's no unified vision as to what it's all about. Why are you doing it? Why are you laboring in this channel? Why, why, why are you going to work and providing? Why are you raising your children this way? If I could put it this way, because you're expressing God. Amen. And so God has given the man a helpmeet. A man has a responsibility. And then the woman just joins with him in that commission. And in doing so, we can fulfill God's vision. We'll invite the musicians to come. I just want to read two more statements and we'll turn it over to Brother Ed. Brother Branham, we're going back to where Brother Branham is speaking in God's provided way. We read it earlier. He says, every father in that day was a priest of his own family. Now he's preaching this again. It was earlier in the same year, 1953. The same title. He says, God's provided way. He says, after a while it come midnight. A great dark roaring cloud come up. I can look. Coming back through yonder, and I see two big black wings spread out across the nation. Here it comes. I just look at the darkness that is all around us. Look at all the, all the, the, the threats and intimidations that are political, social, economic, even now in, in, in diseases. He says, I can hear the priest of the family, the father, say, there's the death angel sweeping the land now. It's too late now. And directly I can see him go dip down into a valley. Talking about this death angel. Hear a scream come up out of that house. The son was dead. Away he went. Directly here he comes right down to another house again and goes in. The big black wings close in around the house. A scream comes up. The son is dead. Now could you imagine witnessing this scene? And in that moment you'd want to think, now why does that death angel succeed in that house? How does he have power to take life in that home? And begin to remember, what did the prophet say? What did the prophet say? What did he say we should be doing? What did he say should be happening? He says, and I could hear the little boy say, Daddy, take another look. Be sure the blood's on there. Why? Because whose responsibility was it to apply the token? It was the priest of the family. It was the father's responsibility to apply the token. And he, he, was, he was not just doing it without understanding. He was explaining, honey, help me. we got to get a lamb of a year old. It's got to be without blemish. we got to draw it out. we got to cook it this way. Honey, you've got to boil it. You can't do this. you got to keep the flesh together, all the pertness together. we got to get our shoes on. we got to be sure that we're eating, ready to go. we got to take the blood, and we can't just throw it on there any other way. We 
We've got to get a lintel. We've got to apply it to the doorpost. We've got to apply it here. We've got to do it exactly like he said to do it. Because if we don't, then death will come to this family. And that father had a responsibility in that house as the priest to be sure the blood was there. And here was a young boy sitting there, Daddy, Daddy, are you sure you've applied the token? And I believe the cry is still the same within our families. Our children want to know, Daddy, are you sure the blood's applied? Are we sure as men that we've applied the token that Christ has welcomed in our homes? Why, it's your responsibility as the priest of the family. Brother Branham says in the way of a true prophet, he says, a real man or woman that's born of the Spirit of God will sit hour after hour drinking in the Word of God. So that's why I preach hour after hour. And after I've been an hour, I usually say we're in the after hour. But I don't, I don't know how long I've been preaching. I just it made the mistake of not looking. So I don't know when to stop. You tell me when I'm done. He says, not only that, But when it hits there, it anchors and changes the life. He says, amen. Yes, it's our people's desires. He says, our whole setup is corrupted and decayed. So it's the arrangement, the setup, the way things have been structured. He says, it's our people's wants. He says, you take a good man, like a good man, put him in a family that's a bunch of pleasure lovers. They'll lead that man a dog's life. And a good woman, either one, put them in a family that's mixed up. That's the power of the family. He said, you take a good man, put him in a family with a bunch of pleasure lovers, and then that man will lead a dog's life. Take a good woman, put her in a family that's all mixed up, and it's going to change the way she lives. That's the power of the family. Now then take the opposite. If a bad family has a power to make a good man bad or lead a dog's life, then what would a good family do? What can a family properly arranged do? It's power. It's protection. The power of parenthood is so powerful that we need not fret about the condition of our children. He's given you the responsibility to be a protection to them. To be a safety to them. So he says, put them in a family that's mixed up. He says, why the whole family should surrender to God? He says, it's our business to pray till our children are saved and keep our house in order. That's your business. It's our duty, he says, to keep the house, to keep the family in order. And that's what I want to leave you with tonight is that responsibility and that challenge that in our family lives, we have the responsibility of keeping things in order. He says the whole family should be surrendered to God. It's our duty to pray till our children are safe and keep the house in order. Would that be your desire? To allow the, the, the great mystery of his coming, the great expression of Jesus Christ in this day to be a reality every day in our lives. And say, Lord, let it begin with me. Lord, I want to come in line with you. I want to be under the headship of your word. I want a greater dedication so that my children can see a reflection of Christ in my own personal life. So it can be a hedge of protection about them. Won't have to worry about my daughter in public school. I won't have to worry about my son away in college. I'll know that there's been a, a right way projected to them. And I know there's a safety net there. There's a hedge of protection about them. Let's stand to our feet. Musicians, you could just feel free to play if there's something on your heart. Let's just bow our heads now. If you'd like to receive just a special touch from the Lord, 
Maybe there's a, a little prick in your heart. Say, Lord, I, I realize that you, there's, a, there's a particular standard that I'm capable of living at, and I'm, I'm living short of it. And for my own sake and my family's sake, maybe as a man, you'd want to lift your hand and say, Lord, I'm coming to you tonight. Say, here I am. I need an adjustment. I need an alignment. I need my upper cervical to be kind of just put back in place tonight. You say, Lord, here I come to the head. Say, Christ, you're my head. I'm humbling myself to you tonight. Maybe there be, even in the role of a father, maybe wives and mothers could say, just the words prick my heart. I believe this is true. And you just want to lift your hand and say, Lord, this is the truth. I yield myself to it. I accept this. Children, maybe there's even children here. Say, Lord, I, I know I see Christ in my parents. I want to obey. You'd want, you'd want God to help you to obey. Even for the young people who are here Friday night, if you're, if you're on that road back, be sure you do what he's asked you to do. Repent. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Because there is a definite experience of the Holy Ghost that you must receive. To be born again, quickened to life by the baptism of the Holy Ghost where you know you've met God. So be, be sensitive to that. I believe the Lord's calling to sons and daughters to yield completely to him. And with the hands raised that have been raised, let us all go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father. Lord, it has been wonderful to sit at your table and not to dine as your guest, but to be the very bride of Christ, feasting at your table. Lord, fulfilling Revelations 3.20, an entrance has been ministered unto us into your divine presence. Uh, you've prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies, and we're feasting on an open book. And Lord, it has been enjoyable to take these words and to feast upon them. And Lord, they have been in our mouth sweet. But Father, we realize that in the processing of it and the assimilating of it into our character, there's a bitterness, Lord, that comes into our belly. And Father, I know that the things that I have expressed tonight in general in nature are challenging because it gets our attention to ask ourselves, am I leading as Christ would lead? Am I subject to Christ as I ought to be? Lord, are you having the preeminence, not just in the church and church services, but in my marriage, in my family life? And Lord, I believe it's your desire, not that we would have dynamic churches, but that we would have dynamic lives. Lord, I believe that the purpose of church is to serve, to encourage the individual, to see that a real relationship is established between the child, the son and daughter, and God, wherein they become new creatures and they live and express your word. So Lord, we are, as ministers of God, trying to facilitate change in people's lives, facilitate changes in marriages, changes in men, changes in women, changes in young people. Ultimately, one Lord, to facilitate take the change of our bodies Lord we stand here today myself in the role of the one that's ministering not to correct Lord not to speak down to but to lift up a word which is lifted up Christ and Lord if you be lifted up may we be drawn unto you tonight may I be able to believe right now as a man who is weak and has, has uh, situations and, and weaknesses and circumstances he's facing to believe that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength and to believe that with man it may be impossible, but with you all things are possible. So I pray that behind each hand that was represented, you would come to their aid, touch them and encourage them and strengthen them. And the uniqueness of these services today, may you be made known unto them. And may they be blessed and enriched, I pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. What song is it you're playing? And search me, oh God.
Sing that verse again. Make that a prayer to him. Yeah. 